the last uh, several times we've been together, we've been talking about the fact that we live in a world in which it's very easy to become discouraged. And discouragement is certainly something that we can all relate to. After all, who can claim to have never had a bad day or to have never experienced one of those days that went from bad to worse? I came across a story I think you might appreciate and that you might enjoy. In fact, when you're having one of those bad days, I want you to remember this story from a young mother who wrote the following. She said, I was taking a shower when my two-year-old son came into the bathroom and wrapped himself in toilet paper. Although he made a mess, he looked so adorable, I ran for my camera and took a few shots. They came out so well that I had copies made and included one with each of our 200 Christmas cards. She said, days later, a relative called about the picture, laughing hysterically and suggesting I should take somewhat of a closer look. Puzzled, I stared at the photo and was shocked to discover that in addition to my son, I had captured my reflection in the bathroom mirror, <laughs> wearing nothing but my camera. Ugh. Merry Christmas, huh? Or the story of a teacher on a special teacher's day. A kind kindergarten teacher was receiving gifts from her pupils. Said in the, uh, the floor, son handed her a gift. She shook it. She held it over her head and she said, it's flowers, isn't it? And he said, yeah, that's right. And she opened them up. He said, how did you know? He said, well, it was a wild guess. Next came the, uh, the, the pupil whose, whose father owned the candy store. And this particular candy store owner's daughter came and handed her a box and she shook it, held it over her head and said, I guess, I, I bet you I know what's in here. And she said, what? She said, I'll bet you it's candy. And she said, yeah, how did you know? She said, oh, it was just a wild guess. And then the liquor store owner's son came up <laughs> and handed her a bag and the bag was leaking. And she touched the bottom of the bag and she tasted it and not recognizing the taste, somewhat not sure, she said, is it a bottle of wine? He goes, no, it's not a bottle of wine. She tasted it again. She said, is it champagne? He said, no, it's not champagne. She said, I give up, then what is it? He said, it's a puppy. <laughs> surprise. Sometimes we have those days in life, don't we? Just that surprise. You know, remember Gomer Powell, the old TV show? Surprise, surprise, surprise. You know, I think about that. You know, in our ongoing study of the book of Romans, we've been reminded that uh, in chapter 8, that as believers, we can find freedom from discouragement. Freedom from discouragement. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 8. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that one of the words that jumped out kind of as our word study as we've gone through the book of Romans is the word hope. In order to find freedom from discouragement, we must have hope. We must believe that something good is taking place in the midst of something that our first instinct would be to say, you know what, this isn't a very good situation at all. But when we have hope, we realize that something good is going on even in the midst of something that at seemingly first glance isn't good at all. That's what hope is all about. That as believers, there are five things that God wants us to know and identify and understand about this hope that's within us. And in Romans chapter 8, if you recall, we, we looked in great detail at the first three points, just as a quick review, the fact that we've, we've learned of the excellence of our hope, which had to do with the fact in Romans chapter 8, if you've got your Bibles in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes these words, he says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
The word worthy had to do with the idea of weighing it on a scale, saying, you know what, when I take everything that, I, that I'm going through in my life, and he went through tremendous uh, things that were difficulties, things that would have discouraged most of us, and in fact could have discouraged him. When he talked about his beatings and his trials and his tribulations and all the things that went on in his life, he said, for I consider these things not even to be worthy to be put on the same scale as that which had to do with weighing what God has promised us and has given us and will deliver to us in the future. He's saying the present sufferings of this time aren't worthy to be compared to what we have to look forward to in the future. The excellence of our hope. The second thing that we saw was that of the expectations of our hope, which has to do with the idea of looking. Looking ahead to that day in the future, looking ahead and looking to see what God has going on for us in the midst of all of these trials and tribulations that come with this life here on earth. In verses 19 through 23, the word looking had to do with the idea of looking ahead to the promises of God. For those of us who have come to faith in Christ, and we need to recognize and understand that it's only as we've secured that that right relationship has been secured with the Lord can we look forward to the promises of God. Because for those of us who the Bible says are in Adam and not in Christ, who are dead in our sins and not alive in Christ, who, who are still alive to sin and dead to Christ, and all the things that we've talked about up to date. And that's why it's so important as we study the Bible to do it in context, as we see the argument laid out very clearly and reasonably and rationally as we've looked at everything that God has said up to this point. What we're going to learn in Romans 8 is, is, a, is, a, is a conclusion of everything that we've learned up to date. And so it's very important that we realize that, recognize that truth. The five events that we talked about looking forward to. Event number one is the return of Jesus Christ. The blessed hope of every believer is that one day Jesus has promised to come back that where he is we will be with him for all of eternity. He said, why is your heart so troubled? Why are you so discouraged? Why are you so bummed out? Why are you so depressed about life? Don't be so discouraged. Don't forget that I'm leaving but I'm leaving for a purpose and it's to prepare a place for you. And one day I will come again for you, and when I do come for you, you will be with me, and it will be for all of eternity. The blessed hope of every believer is the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the midst of those discouraging days, even the, even the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, as he writes, even so, Lord, come quickly. Even so, in the midst of what I'm going through, I long for and look for that day and eagerly wait and expect and anxiously expect. Remember, the word had to do with stretching out my neck and looking up as if I were looking into heaven and just looking and waiting for the day that Jesus will come. But we're not called to sit on a mountaintop and wear a robe and to sit and stare into space waiting for that day. We're to be busy while he's gone, while he's away. We're to be busy doing the things that he's called us to do as believers as we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're to glorify and reflect his glory to the world around us. You know, every human being was created for the purpose of reflecting the glory of God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. But because of sin, that, that image has been distorted. One of the best analogies that I can think of several years ago, Linda and I were in Switzerland and we were standing on the banks of, uh, of the, uh, the uh, Lake Geneva. And as we looked out across Lake Geneva, it was one of those beautiful days. And, and when you're standing on the Swiss, Swiss side, you look across the lake and there's the French Alps. And it was one of those days where the water was so clear and so perfect. And a lot of places that we went was just like that. That if you took a picture, you could take a picture and the reflection in the picture of the mountains, you could turn the picture upside down and not know which is which, but it was so clear and so beautiful. And I think that that is exactly what God meant when he created man in his image and his likeness, to perfectly reflect the glory and the image of God. The mountains will never be the lake, the lake will never be the mountain, but the reality of it is, is that the lake could reflect the glory and the majesty of the Swiss Alps that, were, that we were looking at behind us. But because of sin, it would be like walking out on that lake and taking a rock and throwing it into the water. 
And if you've ever done it, you've seen the ripple effect that it's caused. And if you took a picture at that moment in time, it would be very clear that the water would no longer reflect the majesty and the glory of those, of those mountains. And see, what happened with man is when we sinned before God, when Adam fell and he rebelled against the command of God, the Bible says that all of us in Adam have, have become dead because of our sins to God. We no longer reflect the glory and the image of God. When you look at the world around us and the mess that we're in and everything that you see and everything that we read about and everything we see on the news, man no longer reflects the glory and the image of God. We are a distortion of his creation, and it was never intended to be that way. But for those of us who have come and recognized that we're sinners, that as God says we are, we're guilty before God, and we've responded with faith to the finished work of Christ and believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and we have openly invited him to come into our life, as it were, to forgive us of the sin that we've committed before God. The Bible says that now anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. That our lives should be a reflection back to the original purpose of our creation, which was to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. That as believers, as people look at our life, they should be so attracted because we're light and we're salt, as Jesus said we are. It's a fact. It's not an option. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's no coincidence that Jesus used the same words of us as he did of himself. He says, I am the light of the world. And the light came and shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness hated the light because the darkness, their, ease, their deeds were evil, and the light exposed it. So as believers, as we live a life that's pleasing to God, people should be attracted to us to find out what it's all about in our life. Why are we the way that we are? Why aren't we like everybody else around us? How can we forgive somebody who hurts us? Why don't we want to get even with them? How can we not get angry and have outbursts of anger? Why don't you tell dirty stories? Why don't you tell dirty jokes? Why don't you do the things that are going on? Why don't you come out and get drunk with us? Why don't you do all this stuff that we're doing? What's up with you? And don't ever say, it's my religion. It's my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm different than I used to be. I'm not the same person that I once was. I used to be alive to sin and dead to God. Now I'm alive to God. I'm dead to sin. It just comes with the package. It's the way that it is. And what a wonderful way it is to live in freedom. Freedom from the, from the, the bondage of sin. Freedom from all the mess that we used to go with that package that is so presented so nicely by the world around us. And yet the, 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 uh, the consequences are inevitable. Why? Because God is God. He exists. His truth is real. And there's consequences to disobedience before God. That's just the way it is. But as believers who have come to faith in Christ, the Bible says we can look forward to certain events. We can look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. We should long for and expect that day. We should look forward to it because we'll be revealed as the sons of God. The Bible says as we see Jesus on that day, so we shall be. What an exciting thing then to know that one day we'll be just like him. In all of his glory, in all of his holiness, in all of his perfection, we'll be freed from the very presence of sin. Not just the power of sin as we are today for those who walk in obedience. We're freed from the power of sin. We'll be freed from the very presence of sin. There is no sin. The release of the creation that longs and groans as we look around us in the mess that the world is in, there'll be one day where the curse will be lifted. We can look forward to that. The reunion of all believers for those who have lost a loved one who died in Christ, who died having given their, their life, having given their faith, having given their heart to Jesus Christ. The Bible says that where they are, we shall one day be. There's a reunion that we have to look forward to. A believer, when he dies, is never lost. He's always in the presence of God. 
For I am convinced of this, that when I'm absent from my body, I should be present with the Lord. And the last thing is the redemption of our body. How many of you get discouraged because your body just doesn't want to do what you want it to do? It just doesn't seem to cooperate as much as it used to. Hey. You know what I mean? It's like, wow, that's just the truth, you know? I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be discouraged when it comes to our body. Every time you get up, it's just a reminder that, you know what? This body is not for eternity. This isn't our eternal body. This isn't what God has planned for our future. He's going to redeem the body. We'll have a body that won't have aches and pains. We'll have a body that won't get old and deteriorate. We'll have a body that hair won't fall out all over the shower and get your wife mad because you clog up the drain. You won't have any kind of body like that. It's going to be great, man. I mean, just think about what we have to look forward to. That's why as Paul looked forward to all these things, as Stephen was laying on the ground as he was being stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ and he would not renounce Jesus as his Lord, they said, turn your back on Christ and we'll spare you. And he said, I cannot do that. And they threw him in a pit and they stoned him as he stared into heaven. He looked up and he saw Jesus. He didn't look around. He looked at the very throne room of God and he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for him. And the Bible said because he saw Jesus. You know what he said to those who were killing him? He said out loud, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Where did he learn that? from the Lord himself, as he hung on the cross and as he looked at the world that hated him and put him to death, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't have a clue what they're doing. If they had only known, Stephen, because he had faith in Christ and the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of God revealed to him this truth, he said, forgive them. That's not a natural thing to do. The most natural thing to do is just lay there and say, Lord, take note of every one of these people. You got it? Okay. That's all I need to say. He said, forgive them. The third thing that we talked about was the endurance of our hope. And it has to do with the word perseverance. The endurance of our hope. In verses, uh, as we look at this in verses 24 and 25, we read, For, our, for in hope we have, have been saved, we, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with we have perseverance, and we wait eagerly for it. Perseverance. Carrying it with the idea of hanging in there. Be steadfast and immovable. Keep on keeping on. You know, as we get that encouragement, hey, you know what, I'm praying for you, and I just want to let you know that we're praying you just hang in there. And man, what, a, what an uplifting thing that is. What a word of encouragement that is. Hey, you know what, God put you on my heart, and I just wanted to give you a call and tell you, hey, you know what, I'm praying for you. I don't know why, I'm just, I just wanted to call you. I've had that happen. I've had phone calls at the most incredible moments of time in my life where I've taken my eyes off the Lord, I've become discouraged by the circumstances around me. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call from somebody I hadn't talked to for a while, and they call and say, hey, I just want to tell you, you know what? Hey, we've got a Bible study that we're going, or we've got this going on, and, and man, lives are being changed, and, and we just want to call and thank you. And I just want to thank you for, you know, even when, when you were sharing with me and talking to me, and sometimes I didn't seem interested that, you know, God used you in my life. That's like, Wow. You see, that perseverance of hanging in there, that, 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 that encouragement can be lost in just a split second. Let me just share the irony of this. Talking, I am sitting down at my desk, and I'm writing these words out, and the phone rings, and I look around for someone to answer it. But I remembered no one else was there. Then I thought, well, I'll just let the answer machine pick it up. But then I remembered that it could be my wife. And, you know, you need to pick it up. So... And I learned that, and the reason, you know, I learned it by having the answer machine pick it up a couple times. 
Anyway, and I'm thinking, well, it could be Linda. So I pick up the phone, and the guy on the other end, just as I'm writing it, says, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm doing follow-up on people that visited uh, Calvary last week, and there was a lady who visited Kindred, and she put down on her card she'd visited Kindred. And she had mentioned that she was asked to stand up and introduce herself and tell, us, you know, tell everybody where she's from. She said, I didn't have a problem doing that, but she said, but the interesting thing was, after I did that, there wasn't one person the rest of the day who even acknowledged my presence or spoke to me. And I went, wow, that's fascinating, isn't it? And I was immediately reminded of Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, where the Bible says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And I thought, how sad that is that people could come here and, and need to be encouraged and walk away discouraged because we don't even acknowledge those around us. The challenge, obviously, for all of us is that, you know, when you deal with a group this large, sometimes you don't know whether somebody next to you is here for the first time or their fifth time. And it's sometimes embarrassing to say, hi, is this the first time here? Uh, no, it's like, I think this is our sixth year, so if we come 50 times a week, this is our 300th time. Oh, well, nice to see you. <laughs> you know, but it's kind of the way that it is. And then I, and I realized, you know, the Bible says we need to consider, think carefully, how to stimulate one another. The word actually means how to stir each other up, how to get each other excited. About what? About the things of God. About what we're learning today. About the fact we can look forward to things in the future. And it doesn't even begin to weigh in comparison to the troubles that we're going through today. What is it that's going on in your life that I can do to encourage you, to stimulate you, to stir you up, to get you excited about the fact that, you know what? Don't put your eyes on your circumstances, but put your eyes on the Lord. And if there's something going on in their circumstances in which we can jump in and help out to relieve your burden, we'd be glad to do that. We'd love to do that. That's why we're here. That's the whole purpose of God's church, to build each other up. We come to praise and worship Him, absolutely, but we're also to encourage one another. It's like a huddle, and here's my sports illustration for the day. It's like a huddle, probably not my last, but it's my first one. But uh, it's like a huddle, and you get together in a huddle, and you say, wow, what's going on out there? And you say, man, the big dude's just working me. He is? Which one? And they turn around and go, the big guy right there. So they, that doesn't really happen that way. But, but it's like, well, you know, what can we do? And, and we get together and you consider, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to double team him and we're going to run him into the sideline. We're going to knock him out for you. And everything. good, thanks. Appreciate that. And, and those are the kind of things that we need to do, not to go out in the world and knock people out for you. <laughs> You know, but something close to that. And that's to get, you know, get us excited about the fact that, hey, you know what? God's in control. We've got something positive to look forward to. Why do people need encouraged? Uh, because we live in a discouraging world. Because people come and, that are discouraged by the circumstances of their life. You know, we need to understand that it's easy to get discouraged and it's hard to find places to be encouraged. And that's why we come together. You know, it's fascinating to me. We live in a discouraging world, you know? We live in a world that's filled with discouraged people, people with no hope. But we have hope! But we have victory. Through Jesus Christ, we have hope. And it's okay as believers sometimes to smile every now and then. You know, it just drives me crazy. And let me just share something, get this out of my system, and I'm sure that you'll be real appreciative of it, but listen to me. Some of the most miserable people that I know are Christians. Amen. <laughs> you know, 
I, I ran. I'm, I'm thinking about a guy this week who, you know, he's a, he's a young he's a young man. He works with a college group or high school group. Or he works with some youth group, and he's at his church three to four times a week. He is the most discouraged and discouraging person that I've ever been around. It's like if it was up to him, I mean, you'd almost like want to kill yourself. Things are so bad. And I'm thinking, what in the world could you be sharing with people around you that would even remotely attract you to Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I came to give you freedom from sin. I came to give you abundant life. I came to free you from all the bondage and all the garbage in your life. I came that you will no longer be enemies with God, that you'll be at peace with God. You'll have peace in your own heart. I came to bring you joy and to bring it abundantly. And we walk around all grim-faced. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we all lost focus. Because we're all looking at the circumstances around us. We all got our eyes on the rubbish and not on the Redeemer. We're all looking at the jam we're in instead of looking at Jesus. We're all looking at the confusion and the circumstances of life instead of the Creator. We're all looking at the sufferings of this present world instead of the glory that's to come. We need to become people who focus our eyes on Jesus and the promises of God. And I will guarantee you that if you do, you will have a smile on your face. You have joy in your step. You'll become attractive and you'll reflect the glory and the image of God to those around you. There'll be something that people say, man, you know what, you always got a smile on your face even in the midst of what I would consider to be devastating circumstances. And I want to know how, and I want to know why, and I want to know what I need to do to become more like you. And that's when we turn them to our Savior. It's not us. It's not me. It's not anything in me. Now we're ready for the evolution of our hope. The evolution of our hope, and it's in this next section that we're going to look at in verses 26 through 28. The evolution of our hope is summarized in one word, and that's purpose. Look at verses 26 through 28. And he says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we don't know how to pray as we should. He says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his what? His purpose. The key word is purpose. In order to find freedom from discouragement, we must never, ever, ever forget that God has a plan and he has a purpose. And he has a purpose and a plan for all things. And as we read through scripture, we realize that all things means exactly that, all things. You say, Chuck, but what I'm going through right now, you mean that God has a plan and a purpose behind that? Say, absolutely. I don't know what it is that you're going through that could cause you to be discouraged, but don't ever forget that behind that, the backdrop is that God has a purpose in what he's allowing you to go through. There's a plan behind all of it. Every potentially discouraging situation in my life, I've got to come back to the reality that God is in control, that he has a purpose, that he has a plan, that he's at work behind the scenes. Notice in verse 26, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit helps. It's present tense, meaning this, that God's Spirit keeps on helping us in our weakness. And when he's talking about us, we need to recognize he's talking about a select group of people. 
and those who are us and not them are those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's not saying he helps them or helps the world or helps every person. He's saying he helps us, God's people, who have come to faith in Christ, who are children of God to those who believe in his name. He helps us in our weakness. Listen to me very carefully because it's important for what we're going to talk about next. It is not, it is not that the Spirit helps in an occasional time of weakness in our life. This is very important. It is not that the Spirit of God helps us in those occasional times when we are weak in our life. We are always weak. We are continually weak. It is our state in this lifetime, in this unredeemed or non-redeemed body, we are always weak. Don't miss that. You just don't need help every now and then. I just don't need help every now and then. I need help every minute of every moment of every day. Why? Because of the weakness of my body, a non-redeemed body. That's why Paul said, man, I'm such a messed up guy. I want to do what's right, I keep doing what's wrong. I want to do what's right before God, and I'm struggling with the things that I don't want to do. The things I do want to do for God, I'm not even doing. What's wrong with me? Who can set me free? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has set us free and sets us free on a, on a daily basis. The Spirit of God helps us in our weakness because we are weak continually. Don't miss that. Because what we're going to talk about next, it lays the foundation for it in a way that you'll, you'll always understand it and you'll never forget it. The word helps is a great word. Notice what it says. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, the word helps has to do with the idea of another person carrying the burden for someone else. If you've ever tried to carry something yourself that was just impossible for you to do and you looked around for someone else to help you, it's even more than that. If you looked around for someone else who then ultimately did it for you, the Spirit of God helps us in our state of continual weakness. He continually helps us. And one of the evidences of our weakness is what? That we don't know how to pray. I'm going to be right up front with you. How, aren't there times in your life where it's like, Lord, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to ask you. I don't know whether I want you to remove this suffering that's going on in my life or I don't know what's going on in my life right now. I don't know what you're trying to teach me. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know. And I'm just going to be upfront with you. There are so many times in my life where I go, I, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know how to intelligently pray about this situation because I don't know what God's trying to do. I don't know. What's interesting is when we struggle with it, you think, wow, I mean, well then, but the Bible says we're to pray without ceasing. We are. But it doesn't mean we always know how to pray or what to pray. I mean, there's things in my life that I prayed, you know, God, you know, do this, don't do that, you know, help this person, no, to help that person. I prayed about things that, you know, in total ignorance because I don't know how to pray. But it doesn't stop me from praying. It just helps me realize that I just don't know how. But what's wonderful is I look at this and go, wow, you know, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness for we don't know how to pray as we should. But he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he searches the hearts. No, he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to God's purpose, according to God's will, according to God's plan. He groans. You know, what's interesting is, you know, I ran into something. I thought, this is great. I don't know if you're going to be able to see it, but I'm going to try it. 
Peanuts. Man, this is some good theology right here. Peanuts. Notice this. Watch this. Linus. I think that's Linus, the little thumb-sucking guy there. This is the guy that sucks his thumb with the blanket. Okay, he's going, he's sighing. Lucy says, stop the stupid sighing. He says, there's nothing wrong with sighing. She said, yeah, there is if it bugs someone else. He says, well, you know what? It's scriptural. It's biblical. She says, what? He says, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And she's got this look on his face, and he says, Romans, 8th chapter. Is that great? Romans chapter 8. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't. It gets better. So he walks away and she says, you know, I don't know. I'm either going to have to slug him or start going back to Sunday school. <laughs> Is that great or what? Oh, I love that. I mean, it's, it's just, it's priceless. Because really, it, becomes, it comes down to that. There's nothing more frustrating to people who don't know God and don't see God's hand and his purpose in everything, who see a person who does and gets frustrated by it. Now, I left you hanging last week, and that is in the context of Romans chapter 8, look at verse 28. He says, now read this in context. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I left you hanging. I was telling you about a friend of ours who broke his leg in his first exhibition game with a new team in New Orleans when he was playing for the Saints. I called him and talked to him, and he answered the phone in the hospital. And, 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 and he reminded me of what we're talking about here, and that is the evolution of our hope, seeing God's hand in all things, seeing God's purpose behind it. And what was really fascinating to me, and, and uh, you know, he had just moved his wife, three kids, just signed a new contract, moved from New England area of the country down to New Orleans. And the first game, goes out in the field, breaks his ankle on a play that he wasn't even involved in. One of his uh, teammates got knocked into him, fell on the back of his leg, and shattered his ankle at, at the lower end of his, uh, of his leg. Had to get an eight-inch plate with a steel rod through it and screws holding it all together. And I called him in the hospital, and I had met him eight years ago when we were involved in our Rams Bible study together. And at that time, he was a new Christian. And you know, one of the most remarkable and, and wonderful thing about being involved in someone's life through a period of time is that you see God's God at work. So I called him up. I said, how you doing? He said, man, you know what? He goes, uh, I've just been sitting here today just praying and asking God what it is that he wants me to learn through this. I said, really? He goes, yeah, you know, I thought, you know, with all the injuries I've had, I pretty much learned every lesson there was to learn through injuries, but I, I guess that, you know, I haven't. And I'm just trying to, you know, ask God what it is this time that he's trying to teach me and what he wants to do through this and how he wants to use me. Now, what was interesting to me about that conversation is that eight years before, the first time that I met him and I had talked to him when he had an injury, his first question was, why? Why, God? Why, why me? Why now? Why this? And he went from why to what? I like that. Because that's the journey that we all should be on. Going from why, as babes in Christ, to mature men and women of faith who say, what is it, God? that you want to do through this. I said, well, what has he taught you so far? Well, he said the first thing that was pretty exciting is his two daughters came in, they're little, and the older daughter's in school, elementary school age, and they, they, were looking at the, they were looking at the x-ray, and they could see the plate, and they could see the steel rod, and they could see the screws and stuff, and, and, uh, and uh, she said, Dad, can I ask you something? He said, sure, what is it? He said, um, can I take that picture to school for show and tell? 
And he goes, yeah, there's, there's, there we go. That's a start. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> take, take it to show and tell. It's like, I don't know what else we're going to do through all this, God, but you know what? I'm, I'm just here, and uh, your classroom never closes. And you know what? And that's true, isn't it? God's classroom never closes. It never shuts down. It always concerns me. Oh, here's another thing I want to kind of get off my chest. It always concerns me when Christians have the mentality that we take the summer off. Really? Off of what? Well, you know, I'm just, we, don't kind of, we don't go to church and you know, we, don't have, we don't have our small group meetings and we don't have this, we don't have that. We take the summer off. What? You take the summer off? I don't know how long you've been coming here, but I've never taken much time off. You know why? Because our relationship with the Lord is, is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, man. It doesn't stop. It's never ending. God's classroom's always in session. He's always trying to teach us something. He's always trying to lead us in the way that he wants us to go. He's always trying to direct us. He's always trying to guide us in, in our past. We don't take time off in our relationship with God. It's like a, it's like a couple saying, oh, I'm going to take the next six months off of our marriage. I just need a little break. What? Are you kidding me? We don't take important relationships. We don't take off. Go into your work tomorrow. Say, so, you know, I'm just feeling a little bit like I need some space. I'm thinking about, I don't know, three months maybe, six months tops. I'll send you a card. Hey, don't bother. What do you mean? Well, we'll get someone to take your place. Because life doesn't stop because you decide to. I don't know. I just... All right. God got that done. All right. I feel better. How y'all feeling? Pretty good? Good. Okay. Here we go. We're wrapping up this chapter. The eternal nature of our hope. I can't think of any better way to put it. The eternal nature of our hope is security. It's security. Before we look at this, we need a quick, a quick review of what we learned so far in the book of Romans. As to the past aspect of salvation... When we accepted Christ as Savior, we were justified in a moment in time. If we've done this, our guilt before God... ...for eternity. The present aspect of salvation in this life, through the power of Christ and His indwelling Spirit, we can experience ongoing salvation from the power of sin, and that's sanctification. To the future aspect of salvation... We've already learned of the glorious future when we can look forward to not only the return of Jesus Christ and being revealed as the Son of God and the redemption of the universe and also the redemption of our bodies and the reunion of all believers. We can look forward to all these things. In this glorified state, we'll be free from the very presence of sin. And we, together with all creation, will no longer suffer the consequences of sin. And that is what glory is all about. It's all great and it's all well and good. But what good is all of this? Thinking especially of looking forward to the future. What good is all of it if we won't be there? What good is any of that if we will not be there? What if, for those who have come to faith in Christ, we can do something that would jeopardize that relationship, or we can do something so heinous that it would sever that relationship, that we would not be a part of God's future plan? What if that would happen? Can you and I ever do anything to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? It would be like God 
It'd be like showing a child Christmas toys and Christmas presents and a Christmas tree and all that goes with it and say, come in and look at all this. All of this is yours. Oh, you made a mistake. None of it is yours. And throwing them back out into the street. What good is all of this if it's not guaranteed by God himself? There's no good to any of it. Remember the thesis or the theme of Romans is what? Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The very theme of the book of Romans is, for I am not ashamed of the power of God. Remember, the word power in Greek is the English word that we get dynamite. I'm not ashamed of the dynamite of God. Boom! The question is this, how powerful is God's dynamite? Is God's power limited? Is somehow God's power not powerful enough to be able to assure us and guarantee us and, 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 and deliver to us the promises that he's made? Is God's power somewhat limited? The power of God that holds the universe together is it somehow limited by the acts that you and I could commit that somehow or another it's not powerful enough to hold us into that relationship that he promises us? In John 10, verses 27 and 28, we read these words, My sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Would Jesus give us eternal life only to take it away from us again? We have to look at what the Bible says very clearly. What is eternal life? What does it mean that they will never perish? Words mean something. They're critical to our understanding of God's intent. He gives us eternal life. The clue, hello, should be eternal. There's a clue for you. He doesn't give us temporary life. He doesn't give you a little bit of life. He doesn't give you, I'm going to give you some now and I might take it away from you later life. He gives us eternal life. Why? So that we would never, ever perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would what? Not perish. Ever, ever, never, ever perish. But have everlasting life. Eternal life. And the key to our understanding this is found, as we've read through the scripture already, the key to understanding the promises of God are that the assurances and guarantees of God are delivered by God himself in the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to show you this. Look at verse 26 again. We'll kind of put all this together. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Remember what we just read? For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind, what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let me ask you a very simple question. What is it that you think in your mind could ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ? It always comes back to this. What? Our weaknesses, our infirmities. Our weaknesses or infirmities means this. Our tendency to do that which is wrong before God. Sin. What is it that you think can separate you from the love of God? Isn't it always come back, doesn't it always come back to sin? If I do this, God will no longer love me anymore. If I do this, I am no longer forgiven. If I do this, I can no longer be a child of God. Isn't that the way we think? But the problem is, that's not what Scripture tells us. Because we've already learned the condition that we're in, we're already in a condition that we're always in a condition where we need help continually. So what is it that can separate us from God? We think in our mind it's our tendency to do wrong before God. If I sin, God will no longer forgive me. If I sin, 
severely, whatever we think that is, then God will somehow throw me out of his family. But the Bible says, hey, wait a minute, Chuck, don't, don't you understand something? You're already a mess. You already have a tendency to sin. You do sin. And therefore, I just want to let you know that the Spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us daily to help us in our weaknesses. So who's going to deliver the promises of God? Certainly not us. There's nothing that you and I can ever do that would make us worthy of God's forgiveness. But the reality is, he says, hey, the Spirit of God intercedes for us daily because he knows we need help daily. That's why we never take off from God. We need help daily, everywhere we go, no matter where we are. And the Spirit of God intercedes for us daily. The Spirit of God is our guarantee, Ephesians 1 tells us. When you and I come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us as believers. The Bible calls it God's deposit or hand money, so to speak. It's like putting a down payment on a house only to assure you that the rest of the money is on its way. God's promise is, since you have the Spirit of God living within you, I promise you that I will bring you back to myself, that where I am, you will be forevermore. The Spirit of God delivers upon the promise of God. See, that's the thing we need to take, take advantage of and look at. Hey, can we ever be lost again? Hey, well, the only way you and I can ever be lost is if somehow the Spirit of God isn't powerful enough to intercede for us. If somehow His interceding on our behalf isn't enough before the very throne room of God to take care of us. He would have to fail us, not us. We always fail. Think about what the Word of God says. Hey, when, he, when we're faithless, He's what? Faithful. Second thing is we look at this. And that is, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to me. Not all things will work together for good to all people. It isn't going to all turn out good for everybody. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There is forgiveness. There is judgment and condemnation. Everything's not going to turn out good for everybody. Just as the qualifier was, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone. No, for those who believe. All things don't work together for good for everybody. But they do for those who are in Christ, who believe in God. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Which leads us to the next truth, and that's this. For whom he, speaking of God the Father... Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, these he glorified. Our salvation is assured of us because of, the, of God himself, God the Father. God the Spirit intercedes for us. God the Father calls us. You say, what does it mean to be called by God? It means this, that whosoever will may come. The general calling of God is this, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, the general call of God is to all mankind. Listen, I want to forgive you. All you need to do is believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The general call is out there. Now, who receives the calling of God are those who have come to faith in Christ. If you have answered the call of God, the open invitation, then the Bible assures you that you have been called by God. If you've been called by God, you've been predestined by God. Before you and I ever came into existence, the call of God out to humanity was out there because before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan to send Christ into the world to redeem man to God. So the general call is there, which is, hey, anybody, whosoever will, may come. It's open to everybody, anybody, everybody, anywhere, anytime. There'll never be anybody that stands before the white throne judgment of Christ and says, it's not fair that I'm going to hell because you didn't warn me, you didn't call me, you didn't send me, you didn't whatever. There's nothing in Scripture that says that God calls some people to eternal life and some people to eternal damnation. 
In fact, the Bible clearly says it's the will of God that none should perish. Now listen to this. <coughs> he says, For whom he knew, foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Whom he predestined he called, whom he called he justified, whom he justified he has also glorified. It is a done deal. Justified in the past, sanctified in the present, glorified in the future. It's a done deal. It's already, we're as already as good as in heaven. That's why Paul said that when I'm absent from my body, I'll be present with the Lord. That's why Jesus said, where I go, I prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you that. But because I am, when I come back for you, you're going to be with me forever. That's why the word of God is so clear that you and I can have confidence in our relationship with God. If we have trusted in Christ, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the day that we die, that we will be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's why when you preach at a funeral of a believer who goes to be with the Lord, man, you can preach in boldness and confidence, and you don't have to stand and say, well, I hope wherever he's at, it's a better place. Let me tell you something. There's no question about it. We can all feel sorry and mourn and cry for ourselves because we'll miss that person, but that person's not lost because they've been saved, and they're not lost because we know where they are, and they're not lost because we're going to be with them again. The only thing is they just got a jump start on us. You know, they're there and they're enjoying the very presence of God and we're still here dealing with the discouraging aspects of life. But we don't even have to deal with that because what? we got a future hope that we can look forward to that keeps us focused on the Lord and not the circumstance of our life. We don't have to dwell with the rubbish, we dwell with the Redeemer. So we just look forward to that day. That's exciting stuff. And in boldness and confidence, you can say, hey, listen, you know what? Did the guy ever fail? Yes. Did she ever make mistakes? Absolutely. Did she ever sin before God? Yeah. But you know what? She's been covered by the blood of Christ. And we've already learned that it's God himself who guarantees our redemption. The Spirit of God intercedes for us daily. And, the, and God the Father has called us and chosen us and predestined us. And if he's justified us, he'll sanctify us. If he sanctifies us, he glorifies us. It's a done deal. That's good stuff. So let's keep going. What then shall we say? Let's just wrap it all up on this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You can make whatever accusations that you want. Don't forget, Satan himself makes accusations against the redeemed every minute of every moment of every day. God, how can you love that person? How can you say that person's forgiven? Look what they're doing again. They're making another mistake. They're sinning before you. And he says, you know what? And because we know this, that not only the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf, but what else do we know? That we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, who intercedes for us daily before the very throne room of God. We've got our advocate, our defense attorney, says, yeah, Father, you know what? Chuck's an idiot. We know that. He's but dust, and he keeps making mistakes. But you know what? He's put his faith and his trust in me. And because of that, my future is secured because of Christ, not because of me. He says, what then shall we say if God is for us? Who? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity or Triunity of God, the three persons in one God are all for us. Who could be against us? It says, He who did not spare his own son, delivered him up for us. How will we, he not also with him freely give us all things? Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us daily. He is alive and he is interceding on our behalf. And even in our weaknesses, in our continual state of weakness, he intercedes for us. And he says that that person is, is a child of God. He has put his faith and trust in me. He goes on and says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? For it's God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Notice the argument is very clear. Who can say that you or I are not born again or are not believers in Christ when it's God himself who declared us justified? It isn't something that you and I did. It wasn't some declaration that we made. It is a declaration that was made for all eternity by God himself who justified us at a moment in time when we gave our heart to Jesus Christ. So who can go back against God and say, you made a mistake? Did God make a mistake? Did God somehow make a mistake when he justified you, when you put your faith in Christ or justified me? Don't you understand the question? Who can bring a charge against God? Who can say, God, you made a mistake. Look at this person. God doesn't make mistakes. He can't make mistakes. He's perfect. He's God. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Look at the list. Just as it is written, for thy sake we're being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Remember, they were going through a tremendous amount of persecution. And he was encouraging them, saying, hey, you know what? Even if you're killed for your faith, who can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ? Because why? If they kill you, you'll be with him. If they let you live, you're still a child of God. We can't lose. Isn't that great? Everything that goes on in our life goes on for a purpose to those who love God are called according to his purpose, and he works all things together for good. God is in absolute control of all things. Why are we so discouraged? He knows what he's doing. He doesn't make a mistake. The worst thing in the human mind is that we would die, and the best thing for the Christian is that it's, it's, a, it's a blessing in the sight of the Lord, a precious sight, when the believer dies and goes to be with him. It's a wonderful reality. We look at, oh, death will be the worst thing. It'd be the best thing for those who are in Christ. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. Spend some time and get in the Word and realize how good it's going to be. So what are we fearful of? Dying? Losing a job? Give me a break. Look at all the things that we get discouraged about. Hey, you know what? God's bigger than your boss. God's bigger than your health. God's bigger than everything that goes on in your life that would discourage you. God doesn't make mistakes, and he's allowing you to go through or I to go through what we go through so that we can ask the question, what, instead of why. That's growth. What is it, Lord, that you want to do through my life right now that will reflect your glory to the world around me? Man, that's good stuff. See, and he goes on and says, but in all these things, we are overwhelming conquerors through him who loved us. Overwhelming conquerors means very simply this. We are super conquerors. Super conquerors. Super conquerors. It's like a t-shirt, man. We are super conquerors. Through my own strength, my own abilities? No. Through Christ who strengthens us. That is the key, the secret to living an abundant, victorious Christian life. is through Christ who strengthens us. That's good stuff. Those in Christ know how sweet it is. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Wow. For I am convinced. Is that awesome? Are you convinced? Are you convinced to the point where somebody says, but you know what, but I believe I can lose my salvation. That you're so convinced that you could share with them that it's impossible 
Because it's not your salvation. It's God's salvation. It's His justification. It's His sanctification. His, his glorification. And we are, by grace, the benefit, beneficiaries, the, 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 uh, the recipients of His great love for us. For those who have tasted and know Christ, this is a wonderful truth of how sweet He can be. Let me close with this story. So at the University of Chicago Divinity School, each year they have what's called Baptist Day. On this day, each one is to bring a lunch to eat outdoors in a grassy picnic area. Every Baptist Day, the school would invite one of the greatest minds to lecture in Theological Education Center. One year, they invited Dr. Paul Tillich, is his name. Dr. Tillich spoke for two and one-half hours, quote, proving, proving that the resurrection of Jesus was false. He quoted scholar after scholar and book after book. He concluded that since there was no such thing as the historical resurrection, the religious tradition of the church was groundless. It was groundless emotional mumbo-jumbo because it was based on a relationship with the risen Jesus who, in fact, never rose from the dead in any literal sense. That's what he spoke on. He then asked if there were any questions. And about, after about 30 seconds, an old preacher standing in the back with a head of short-cropped, woolly white hair stood in the back and said, Dr. Tillich, i got one question for you. All eyes turned toward him, toward him, waiting to see what he had to say. He reached into his sack lunch and he pulled out an apple and he began to eat it. He said, Dr. Tillich, crunch, munch. My question is this, crunch, munch. Now, I ain't never read any of them books that you just shared with us. And I can't recite the scriptures in the original Greek, crunch, munch. And I don't know nothing about neighbor and hedinger, crunch, munch. Finish the apple. He says, all I want to know is this. The apple that I just ate, was it bitter or was it sweet? Dr. Tillich paused. He said, uh, for the moment, he said, I cannot possibly answer that question because I haven't tasted your apple. And the preacher dropped the core of the apple into his crumpled paper bag and looked up at him and said calmly, neither have you tasted my Jesus. And at that, he turned and he walked away. See, for those of us who have tasted the goodness of God, the grace of God, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we shake our head in affirmation because the Spirit of God within us bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God to those who believe in His name. The Spirit of God within us tells us that this is truth. The Spirit of God within us gives us assurance that the words that you hear coming from the Word of God are from the very mind of God Himself. That they were written for our benefit that we may know, and this is the witness that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. And he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Not temporary, not for the moment, not to be taken away, but that you know that you have eternal life. As Jesus said, that I give them eternal life and they will never, ever perish. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. How can any of us who have come to faith in Christ ever be discouraged? It can only be that we've taken our eyes and our focus off you and we've forgotten the promises that you've made in your word. God, help us to get us refocused to give us a new, fresh perspective that comes from the perspective that we get from your word. We thank you that our assurance of salvation is founded upon the fact that God the Father has called us and he has chosen us. He's predestined us. 
He has called us. He has justified us. He has sanctified us. He has glorified us. All in a moment of time. We thank you that the Spirit of God himself intercedes for us on a daily basis because we are so weak and we're so prone to make mistakes that he continually intercedes for us and that intercession does not go with any failure at all. We thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who offered himself up on the cross in our place for those whosoever will believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And today is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us for we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, that word again, our tendency to make mistakes and to fail you. But he can, he can sympathize with us because he was like us yet without sin. God, we just thank you that our salvation is based upon your promises and not based on our performance. It's because of our position in Christ. It has nothing to do with anything that we could ever do, past, present, or future, future in a positive or negative way. For it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. God, I just thank you for the assurance that we have that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.